Lesson three, part one of Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Elements of Geology by William Ruschenberger. Lesson three, part one. Third geological epoch. Secondary formation. Carboniferous formation. Old red stone. Fossils. Coal formation fossils, extent of coal measures. Third geological epoch, secondary formation, carboniferous formation. After the great revolutions which seem to have terminated the ancient period commonly designated as the transition epoch, the earth appears to have remained in a state of repose for a long time, which permitted new generations of organised beings to multiply on its surface, and mineral substances carried by the waters to be deposited in great layers, and to entomb in their substance the solid remains of the exuvia of contemporaneous animals and plants. The first deposits which took place during this geological epoch constituted the strata of sandstone conglomerate an assemblage of fragments of rocks and pebbles cemented together by other mineral matter, clay, calcareous rocks, etc. And from their union resulted the formation called by geologists the old red sandstone, on account of its antiquity and prevailing colour. But this state of things was soon changed, and there was formed slowly and gradually at the bottom of the waters an immense stratum of calcareous rocks seven or eight hundred feet in thickness. Then the sandy sediment alternated with these limestones, and above this great formation, designated under the name of carboniferous limestone, coal-bearing, numerous strata of sandstone, schistose clay, and coal were accumulated. The fossils of the old red stone are somewhat numerous and belong for the most part to marine animals, among which was a fish of strange form called cephalaspis, from the Greek kephala, head, and aspis, shield or buckler, because its head resembles a kind of buckler. The remains of the genus cephalapsis are found chiefly in the upper beds of the old red sandstone of Scotland, but also in Herefordshire and Wales. In this genus, the head is very large in proportion to the body, and occupies nearly one-third of the entire length of the animal. Its outline is rounded and crescent-shaped, and the lateral horns slightly incline towards each other, their points being nearer to one another than they are to the round part of the snout. The middle of the head is elevated and the sides dilated so as to overlap the body and extend considerably behind it. But perhaps the head only appears to extend so far owing to accidents of displacement since the death of the animal. The eyes are placed in the middle of the shield, near to each other, and are directed straight upwards. It is imagined that the pointed horns of the crescent 
may have been useful as defences when the fish was attacked by the powerful cephalopods which inhabited the ocean at the period of its existence. The head and body are covered with scales of peculiar and varied shapes. Anstead. The carboniferous limestone, also called mountain limestone and metalliferous limestone, affords several varieties of black, bluish-grey and variegated marbles, as well as ores of lead, copper, zinc, etc. It contains a great number of organic remains, such as divers, polyperia, cyathophylla, madrepora, etc., encrinites, which belong to the division of crinoidea. It also contains the remains of a number of mollusks, as the Orthoceras lateralis, goniotites, which resemble the nautilus, Bellerophons, which with analogous forms are not chambered, Euomphalus, Spirifers, and Productus in great variety especially. The Crinoidei, from the Greek Crinon, a lily, and Eidos, resemblance, a family belonging to the class of radiate animals, are remarkable for the simplicity of their organisation and the peculiarly complicated structure of their skeleton. The animal resembled a true polyp, or coral animalcule. The body consisted of a gelatinous tube, contracted at one extremity by which it was attached, and furnished at the opposite end with a variable number of delicate contractile filaments placed around the opening which represents the mouth. The calcareous skeleton was formed within the tube, and consisted of thousands of regularly shaped pieces kept together by the tough membrane which enclosed them during the life of the animal. The family is divided into genera according to the form of the stems or according to its general shape. When the arms or stems are round, it is an encrinite. The cyathocrinites, taken for its name from the Greek, cyathos a cup and crinon a lily, Many limestones are composed almost exclusively of the remains of species of crinoidea, as at Lockport, New York, and various genera of this family are found in Alabama, near Huntsville. The orthoceras, or orthoceratite, from the Greek orthos, straight, and keras, horn, is straight or slightly bent, cylindrical, slightly conical, many-chambered cell. The chambers are separated by plain scepter, which are concave towards the larger end and pierced with siphuncle. Goniotites, from the Greek gonia and angle, is a genus of extinct cephalopods which inhabited a chambered shell resembling that of the ammonites. Bellerophon, from the Greek Bellerophontes, the name of a fabulous hero, a genus of cephalopods which inhabited chambered shells similar to those of the Argonaut and Nautilus. The Euomphalus, from the Greek U properly, and Omphalus the navel, was a gastropod mollusk. The shell is often exceedingly thick and is divided irregularly into a number of compartments or chambers, provided with a solid tube running through them, entirely shutting off that part of the shell in which the animal dwelt, 
from the smaller and uninhabited portion. These empty spaces served, no doubt, as floats, rendering the whole mass of the shell and animal sufficiently light to move easily in the water, and stead. At the period of the coal formation, the earth appears to have been occupied in a great part by a deep sea studded with islands covered by an abundant and luxuriant vegetation. The then existing plants differed very much from those now living. Hundreds of different species are known, but almost the whole of them belong to the class of vascular cryptogamia. They are principally ferns, equistaceae, lycopodiaceae, that is, plants of a very simple structure, but of gigantic size. The tree ferns, of which existing species do not exceed 20 or 25 feet in height, even in the torrent zone, and generally not more than 8 or 10 feet, then grew in localities far beyond the tropics, from 40 to 50 feet high, and other plants whose representatives of the present time are mere herbs, then rose to 60 feet in height. In that period there were also insects resembling weevils and neuroptera of the present day. Scorpions, which differed from existing species in the number of their eyes, freshwater mollusks, and very remarkable fishes, which in certain respects resembled reptiles, and had their bodies covered by thick, solid plates. The debris of the plants of that period accumulated in immense masses and altered by time and other causes, were transformed into the combustible material, which is so immensely valuable, known under the name of coal. The deposits of coal begin in France, ordinarily with pudding stones, formed of the debris of different rocks from the surrounding country, often comprising gigantic blocks scarcely rounded. Sometimes finer pudding stones alternate with sandstone, which always constitutes a chief part of the deposit. Very numerous varieties of these sandstones arising from the size of the grains of quartz and the quantity of argillaceous matter entering into their composition are found. They are frequently micaceous and schistos. They contain beds of clay slate and bituminous schist which are sometimes very thick, but rarely calcareous strata. The masses of coal are scattered throughout, but are always separated from the sandstone by beds of slate. These are at first nearly pure, then mixed with the combustible, and finally are represented alone above the deposit. Besides the coal formed by the accumulation of the debris of the decomposed plants, the coal measures contain a great number of the remains of plants which retain their organic characters. The stems and trunks of trees are found in the sandstone. The leaves have left their imprints perfectly preserved in the schists and clays which accompany the coal. The impressions of ferns are extremely numerous. Among them is the Pocopterus, 
of which the leaflets, but little detached from the pedicle, are joined in a single leaf, deeply incised, in which we recognise a principal nervure from which the secondary nervures arise perpendicularly. This pharaenopterus, analogous to the preceding, but in which the leaflets are more distinct, deeply lobed, and have the nervures radiate almost from the base, the neuropterus, which also has the leaflets detached, but entire and rounded, and the nervures arise very obliquely from the middle nervure, and afterwards frequently divide, and a great number of other genera founded on the form of their leaflets and the arrangement of their nervures. We also find various other plants, the families of which are uncertain, such as the sphenophyllites, the anularia, etc., which are very abundant in certain localities. True equisita appear to have existed in the coal measures, but we are also led to place in the same family certain stems, grooved lengthwise with joints at intervals from which branches sometimes spring. These stems, called calamites, are often found, like all the rest of those of which we speak, converted into argillaceous matter, which has become hard, or into carbonates of iron, but rarely into siliceous matter. The external vegetable tissue is frequently found to have passed into a carbonous state. The lycopodaceae embrace various species of lepidodendrons, of which entire trees have been sometimes found upwards of sixty feet in height. Their trunks present rhomboidal projections, spirally arranged, which clearly exhibit near the top cicatrices of leaves. The cigillariae seem to range themselves next to the cicadiae. Their stems, flattened by pressure, are channelled lengthwise but not articulated, and the cicatrices were arranged in a longitudinal series. The stems, called stigmaria, are, according to Adolf Bronya, probably only the roots of plants, the body of which is traversed by a ligneous axis surrounded by soft, fleshy parts. The conifers, which, from the consistence of their wood, seem to have participated largely in the formation of carbonaceous matter in different strata, present us in the different coal measures, especially in the upper beds, species approximating to the Araucaria in their spirally arranged sessile leaves. M. Rolf-Bronia refers the whole of them to the genus Valkia of M. Sternberg. Animal remains are not very common in coal measures. Still, some are found, and even in great numbers in some localities. From the calcareous beds subordinate to these sandstones in the environs of Edinburgh, Dr. Hibbert has collected the remains of enormous sauride fishes, the strong and longitudinally striated teeth of which, as well as the whole osseous system, remind us of the largest-sized reptiles. The limestone in which they are found also contains particular concretions, which are considered to be the excrement of these animals, and on this account are called coprolites, 
from the Greek copros, dung, and lethos, stone. The family of squalae was then represented by the division of cestrations, characterized by teeth adapted for grinding, and by that of the hybodons with conoidal but not trenchant teeth, the enamel of which is plaited on both surfaces. The true sharks, with teeth flattened and trenchant on the edges, did not then exist, and did not appear until very much later in the Cretaceous formation. Other fishes are found in the coal basins of the continent of Europe, either in the bituminous schists, as at Zagerbrück and Anton, or in kidney-shaped masses of carbonate of iron, as at Saint-Étienne. They belong to neighbouring genera of sturgeons, named by Monsieur Agassiz, Palaeoniscus, and Ambleterus, and seem to have lived in fresh water. Marine shells are rare in coal strata, and are only found in the subordinate limestone of Belgium and England. But at the same time there were some species of Unio and some small entomostracans which indicate at least an afflux of fresh water to the sea at the points where these particular deposits were made. The extent of the coal measures. It is evident that the coal formation cannot be found except above the Cambrian, Silurian and Devonian strata, which were formed anteriorly to or about the time of these deposits. If it existed before that period, it must be necessarily concealed by all the strata subsequently formed, and searches have been extended below them at great expense for this combustible. The consequence is that the coal formation occupies a small portion of the uncovered surface of the earth. All the deposits known in France do not occupy more than one two-hundredth part of the superficies of the territory. England and Belgium are comparatively richer, for in the first the surface of the coal formations is equal to one-twentieth of the whole kingdom, and in the second to one-twenty-fourth. All the other states of Europe are much poorer, and some, Sweden, Norway, Russia, Italy and Greece, are almost entirely without this valuable formation. Bohemia is the richest part of Germany in coal, though it does not produce largely. The northern part of the Spanish peninsula seems to contain considerable deposits of coal, and to participate in this respect in the wealth of Western Europe. The coal fields of the United States are numerous and extensive, Coal is found in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois, Alabama, Mississippi, and Indiana. In a word, the coal formation in the United States is greater than in any country or kingdom on the face of the earth, and embraces every variety hitherto discovered. The different layers constituting the coal measures were deposited horizontally at the bottom of the basins they occupy, but they have not remained in this position. At certain places they were raised up, and at others lowered down, 
so that they became more or less oblique, and often seemed to be, as it were, folded on themselves. It is also remarked that frequently a certain extent of the mass formed by these layers has been separated from neighbouring parts by a sort of split or cleft, and elevated or depressed to a different level. Consequently, the beds of coal are suddenly interrupted at these points, and are found further on at a different height. These geological accidents are designated by miners under the name of faults. Speaking of the origin and nature of coal, Dr. Buckland remarks, The most early stage to which we can carry back its origin was among the swamps and forests of the primeval earth, where it flourished in the form of gigantic calamites and stately lepidodendra and sigillaria. From their native bed, these plants were transported into some adjacent lake or estuary or sea. Here they floated on the waters until they sank saturated to the bottom, and being buried in the detritus of adjacent lands became transferred to a new estate among the members of the mineral kingdom. A long interment followed, during which a course of chemical changes and new combinations of their vegetable elements converted them to the mineral condition of coal. By the elevating force of subterranean agency, these beds of coal have been uplifted from beneath the waters to a new position in the hills and mountains, where they are accessible to the industry of man. From this fourth stage, coal has been removed by the labours of the miner, assisted by the arts and sciences that have cooperated to produce the steam engine and the safety lamp. Returned once more to the light of day and the second time committed to the waters, it has, by the aid of navigation, been conveyed to the scene of its next and most considerable change by fire a change during which it becomes subservient to the most important wants and conveniences of man. In this seventh stage of its long and eventful history, it seems to the vulgar eye to undergo annihilation. Its elements are indeed released from the mineral combinations which they have maintained for ages, but their apparent destruction is only the commencement of a new succession of change and of activity. Set free from their long imprisonment, they return to their native atmosphere, from which they were absorbed by the primeval vegetation of the earth. Tomorrow they may contribute to the substance of timber in the trees of our existing forests, and having for a while resumed their place in the living vegetable kingdom, may ere long be applied a second time to the use and benefit of man. And when decay or fire shall once more consign them to the earth or to the atmosphere, the same elements will enter on some further department to their perpetual ministration in the economy of the material world. A part of this grand upturning of the coal formation has not disturbed the more recent strata by which it may be covered, and consequently it must have been affected at the close of the geological period whose history we have just studied. End of Lesson 3, Part 1